0: This yeah. is the Cultural Fluency Podcast with Angel Preto, the French coach. That's me. Today, in episode number five, I am with Joris Le another fellow French person who's going to speak only English to you. Well, at least today. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you have built an impressive following on TikTok with over 100,000 followers. Um, congratulations for that. Uh, on a more Thanks. local perspective, you are actually the first cisgender man to ever be on this podcast. So congratulations okay. as well. I realized that, I was like, yeah, oh, interesting. Um, but you're not I don't think to- I
1: deserve congratulations for that, but yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, it just happened to be. Yeah, well, it doesn't just happen in the sense that I tend to choose my guests uh, based on the wealth of the perspective that they can share.
1: Ah, uh, I got you, it makes
0: sense though. okay. <laughs> so it's okay. not random, it doesn't just happen. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, you deserve congratulations for that. However, uh, you- are not really immune to intersectionality yourself, which is how you end up on this podcast. And so for, because it's something you speak about a lot. So yeah, for the people who don't know you yet, can you, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit what you're all about.
1: Well, okay. Um, I'm all over the place. This is me. Um, Right, so I am French. I I am mixed race or biracial, depending on which side of the Atlantic you are and whichever term you're more comfortable with. Um, so yeah, I am white and black Caribbean. Um, both sides are French, but one side, is, side is, is French Caribbean and the other one is French, white French. So that's where I'm from. I am based in the UK, so I now have dual citizenship. I am a fully Brit um, citizen, subject of Her Majesty the Queen and I can't be kicked out by whichever policies that our current British government is trying to implement.
0: Um, nice. About
1: myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm mostly active on social media where I make social commentary and, and I draw from my lived experiences of having lived and worked in five different countries, three different continents, and also both um, my experiences on both sides of privilege and disadvantages, and also draw from my multiple experiences of marginalization as a person of color as a gay man and also as a neurodivergent person because i have adhd and i am on the autistic spectrum and i like to draw parallels between those multiple experiences and see how they all boil down to power dynamics and and the relationship between the dominant group or the norm and the marginalized or minoritized groups uh, of which i am a part of
0: so obviously you feel that being a part of those groups as well as having had experience in different countries and different industries as well uh, that has shaped you differently as a person like that that's like a huge that's, opportunities for personal growth and, and generally yeah well, i so. don't know if it's i don't know if it's opportunity
1: we, we will never know it's like it's like the saying of you know trauma made you a stronger person well we don't know because we don't know who we would we would be without that trauma. right so yeah. it's, it's neither positive or negative it's just part of who I am and then mm-hmm. yes I, I've I've managed and I've been lucky enough to be able to capitalize on those experiences um, in terms of social capital because that's what I talk about on, on social media and that got me quite some a, a fairly big following and also in terms of, of money capital because that's also what I do for a living it's, um, talking and training and teaching about those experiences so yes they it's core of my identity. It's made me who I am. And on top of that, I'm very lucky that I'm able to capitalize on it, which is a very rare uh, occur- occurrence in, yeah. in, in, in in within marginalized people. So mm-hmm. I'm fully aware of my 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 luck and chance and, and privilege.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's actually one of the things I had on, on my list to speak about uh, with you today. I think it was last week that you shared something about uh, acquired privilege versus innate privilege. And I find that yeah. this is something that it is so not talked about and mm-hmm. it, it drives me nuts because people especially in you know left wing or lefty spaces i don't know how to call them they they have such a fixed mindset that they basically assume that you are born with a certain amount of fixed set of privileges just like some people believe that it's fixed whether you're intelligent or not at birth even though we know that it's not true and it, it drives me and, crazy yeah um, because I mean, you basically pretty much check your privileges at the beginning. So maybe I should do the same. Uh, I'm obviously a white person. Um, okay. but, um, other than that I pass as male now, so I have male privileges, which I love mm-hmm. they are really cool, uh, but I'm non-binary I'm gender fluid mm-hmm. and, um, I've been living I've lived as female quote unquote until I was 31 and then as male okay. for the remaining, uh well, remaining until now, basically, and I'm 46, but at this stage, I'm considering that uh, I don't love being stuck in one gender. I, I fucking hate it, to be honest. Uh, I'm gender fluid, and I don't know if I should give up a part of my male privileges to be able to be more of myself, or mm. if I should keep them because uh, they're cool. <laughs> so I, I guess so, it's, a, it's yeah. case, day by day thing, you know, and it's, uh, and also I've been able to capitalize on that a lot because I said opportunity mm-hmm. because it's like almost a sort of a deformation in my head that I can reframe reframe everything as a positive. Yeah. I am perfectly able to reframe being fired for being trans twice in six months as an opportunity um, yeah. because I'm a business owner now and I love what I do yeah. and I, and I love what I've, how I've been able to capitalize on that and I'm sure like I basically stopped being too involved with social justice just because of the people who. Would literally shun you if you would move too much away from the stereotype of like, oh, poor me, look at what happened, and the cow, would like,
1: oh, it's it's time. Yeah, that's I'm in the middle of that right now, and um, yes, it's it's particularly frustrating. I wouldn't. I always keep in mind that this is nothing in comparison to the kind of pushback that we get from from conservatives and for bigots. But still, when it comes from within your ranks and within the people that you consider as part of your community sharing your values it's much more it's, it's much more difficult to deal with because there's no room for debate and growth within our mm-hmm. community and and that becomes very toxic but when i say that i, I want to make it clear that i'm not saying that for instance the left is more toxic than the right because this is something that is very often then um um, then appropriated by the right that they used to say you see the left is terrible blah 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 and then they run away with it and then we kind of like gave that weapon to them. So I'm, I'm, I'm conscious mm-hmm. of that but, but it is something to be talked about when the, the lack of nuance within, within the left um, it, it's, it's a problem.
0: Yeah and, and it's almost as if we don't want to get into our own nuances because we are afraid of giving weapons to to like you know I wish people would understand what's like an internal discussion within the community and what is something like it's almost like people can't have context
1: yeah why yeah (laughs) And, and and very often these these normal healthy conversations and debates they are portrayed as you know being cancel culture being this or that which is inherently racist because when you use those terms to diminish and and delegitimate de- some healthy conversations by calling them cancel culture for instance then you you end up with us not being able to have those conversations mm-hmm. and and then just to go back to what you said earlier about you know what the conversations we're having around privilege and unfortunately people are really good at spotting privilege uh, in others but whenever it comes to looking inwards and trying to realize the ways in which your position, you may have benefited from it in certain ways, all the while being marginalized. A lot of people are not ready for that. And a lot of people who claim to be leftists are not ready for that. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a really big problem because I think that you cannot enter a space, um, a space of marginalized people without first acknowledging your privileges and your positionality, your position in relation to those other Marginalized identities, and that's something that I try to do all the time. And and I feel like, yeah, not everyone is on the same page, mm-hmm. and that's a problem.
0: Do you find that you have a lot of success uh, in having people uh, trying to get people to acknowledge their own personal position and the privilege that they do benefit from, or is it something that's an uphill battle every step of the way, which you're losing? Well, that's because <laughs> I I, I mean true. my expe- limited experience with that is like whoa 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 I. I Waste of my time, but it's different for you.
1: It depends on the context. That's literally what my trainings, the trainings that I deliver on anti-racism, privilege and bias, that's literally what they're based on. And that's what we spend a whole hour doing is realizing how we all benefit from some privileges and some disadvantages. So it takes time and it takes people to literally sit down and listen to you and take in what you have to say. So it works in in setups and in situations where I know I have two and a half hours, three hours to talk to people and I know I have the time to make my points and I I know the steps to get there. I don't go there straight away. So it, it can work and it does work most of the time in those contexts. Now, If you look at social media and TikTok and, you know, how you only have a few seconds to make a point, then there's not much room to make that case. So Mm -hmm. it's not that efficient because all of those complex notions that take nuance and patience and attention. This is exactly what what social media are built to avoid. So I'm talking TikTok. I'm talking Twitter where you have to be you have to catch attention and you have to go straight to the point and it turns into slogans, which certain Mm -hmm. concepts do not fit into slogans. And then you end up with some like negative backlash when, you know, you, you you know, that the person would actually be on your side if they got your point, but they're not listening because they, they didn't, they they don't allow for nuance and and Mm -hmm. they already have this, this preconceived idea of what you're trying to say because it sounds like something that they've heard before, but right. from from bigots or from people who come with a completely different approach. And they will respond to that instead of actually engaging with what you actually said. So mm-hmm. it, it, it can be very frustrating. So yes, it's a very positive experience in my experience, in my work, but not so positive when it comes to what I do on social media.
0: Right, that makes sense, yeah. That, that's why I personally, i'm so afraid and i kind of suck at social media because i cannot be concise i cannot make a small point like it's not possible your point yeah. is always nuanced and contextualized otherwise it's not a point and that's totally why i wanted to have a one hour long podcast because now we have time to speak about these mm-hmm. things and i'm actually very admiring of people like you who make like in one minute or in less than one minute a point that is thought-provoking and uh, mm-hmm. but most of the time i want to take that point and have a, like sit down with you have a conversation to see if uh, Just pull it out. And I have a perfect example for that because I've been through your TikTok this morning to prepare this interview. And in Mm -hmm. one of them, which was extremely short, you said hot take, beauty privilege is the only privilege that society gives you but doesn't want you to know you have. And I would really want you to elaborate on that because, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I just don't see it. We just um, spoke about how privilege is invisible to the one who has it. That's like one of the main principles of privilege. And it appears that the whole of society is built on the fact that people have privileges but don't know that they do. And at the same time, you say that the only privilege that fits this description is beauty privilege. And I'm like, wait, how does that not apply to all the other privileges? Okay, so first thing
1: is, (laughs) It, this is exactly what I hope to achieve when I post on so- social media. Yay. I don't expect you to get to get or to agree with me straight away, but I hope to start a conversation. And then I, I really appreciate when people are like, okay, I'm not sure I get the point. Let's elaborate because I love to do that. The problem is that a lot of people just see it and see it. And it's like, oh, well, it doesn't make sense because you said something different last time. I don't want to hear from you anymore because you're you you just just you're a hypocrite. And it's like, mm-hmm. let's get some nuance, let's get into the meat of it. Okay, so that was the first acknowledgement, and that actually answering your question. Um, yes, privilege is invisible to those who have it, but that doesn't mean that society necessarily wants you to not know about it. If we look at, for instance, white privilege, it is a privilege that the entire society relies on everyone being aware of it to scare people so that people know their place. So many privileges, actually, it is difficult for the individual to know they have it, but society itself wants people to know about it so that everyone knows their place. And this is how you have class privilege, for instance, uh, even though usually the, the holders of that privilege will not admit that they have it, but society will still tell you that it is it exists and you better listen to it and you better follow it. You better follow that hierarchy that stems from it. So it is expected for the individual to know of that hierarchy.
0: So, in a subconscious very- level, I'm sorry, I yes. don't mean to introduce, but like it's more like they know it subconsciously and they act on it, even though they don't uh, consensually, like uh, con- consciously acknowledge it. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. So, yes. So, let's say let's take any privilege, let's say someone is someone is holder of privilege, so they have privilege, it is usually socially rewarded for the person to acknowledge that they have that privilege. Let's say uh-huh. a white person, right? if they admit that they may benefit from their whiteness, it is usually well-perceived, apart from, from far-right and bigots and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but it, it is usually perceived as someone being aware of, of their privilege, and it is rewarded by society right. if you acknowledge that you are wealthy and that it has consequences and that it may stem from injustice it is usually well received and rewarded but then if you start talking about beauty privilege and you acknowledge that your conventional attractiveness uh, gives you some adv- advantages then it is very often received as who the fuck do you think mm. you are well you're not all that you're not that you're not that sexy you're not that beautiful And the the response very often misses the point that you're not calling yourself, you're not passing judgment on on your look because very often you can be aware that you benefit from beauty privilege and still hate yourself and hate the way you look. So those two things are different. But uh, so yeah, instead of being um, received as, you know, the, the result of structures in society because we don't choose the way we look, and but we can be aware of the many ways that we benefit from it but this is a conversation that is considerably more difficult to have when we talk about beauty privilege than Mm -hmm. other privileges yeah that That, think i don't know if that yeah no no it does that is
0: that is so interesting um yeah why do you think that is like why would we specifically single out beauty privilege as opposed to any other one
1: I think because it, it probably stems from good intention. The, the, the thing is, that if there's a negation that beauty is a social marker. Why? It's because we want everyone to feel, what well, at least the idea is that we don't want people to be disappointed or to be disheartened by the idea that beauty is an absolute and that you either have it or don't have it. So to counter this narrative, people have come up with the idea that, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, Uh, beauty is subjective. Um, So there is no such thing as beauty. We are all beautiful in our own way, which, which stems from a good intention. But at the same time, it negates the social factor, the fact that in our society, it is a tangible thing that either benefits you or may further marginalize you, whether depending on whether you fall within that norm or outside of it. Uh, so there's a confusion when we talk about beauty privilege. It is, it is, it is received as a brag and not as uh, the acknowledgement of a power dynamic that is built by society and that we're not responsible for, but that we can look into how we may benefit from it or be marginalized by it. So it's, it's probably this misunderstanding, but because it touches on right. the core of who you are and how you see yourself, it is much more, it is much more comfortable to just see beauty as this subjective thing that has no tangible effect as opposed to beauty as a social construct that
0: does determine your position in society. And yeah, now I think I get it. It's almost like people can't make a difference between beauty, which is in the eye of the, of the beholder, which you can have a subjective perception and a conventional attractiveness, which by definition is conventional and people agree exactly. on it. Like personally, exactly for me, the way that I perceive beauty, I guess, because I'm a trans person and I'm also queer and whatever, I have a really hard time perceiving conventional attractiveness as beauty like it's something I see the difference Mm. very easily because I can find someone very beautiful and know that they are not conventionally attractive while at the same time, I can know that the person is conventionally attractive because I know what criteria, Uh, but I I look at that person like, like what? Like for example, I I made a series of videos about Bradley Cooper, who was elected the sexiest Mm. man alive in 2011 and the French went crazy over it when that happened. There were like a number of interviews, which are something to react to on YouTube, which is what I did. And he he, i i i understand that for a man having been called the sexiest man alive, he has to fit very tightly in the criteria of conventional attractiveness. I I don't I don't I mean I I I I see okay like he's a he's symmetrical, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing, there's a Talking about beauty as a social construct doesn't mean that we're talking about your tastes. So you yeah. can have completely different tastes from the, the convention conventional beauty and still acknowledge that there is such a thing as conventional beauty, which, yeah, you may mm-hmm. disagree with, but we you can still have that conversation. You yeah. can be attractive for a certain type of people that you know are not conventionally attractive and you know are less likely to benefit from beauty privilege. So those are two different things, Mm -hmm. but yeah, people can very often struggle to separate the two.
0: Right. How do you feel that beauty privilege intersects with racism in your case? (laughs) Well,
1: um, let's see. Ooh, uh, how many hours have we got?
0: (laughs) Normally one hour total, but we can make (laughs) a second episode if you want.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, the beauty standards uh, are are built around whiteness as the default. Therefore, existing outside of those standards that automatically already gives you, like, weighs you down already. Um, I think I am the example of someone who started as a person of color, therefore invisible, Mm -hmm. especially the part of my life, the part of my youth that i spent in in a white majority society that that i spent in mainland france because i grew up in in guadeloupe in the caribbean and then i moved to mainland france so i really experienced two different experiences of two different societies one black majority society and then moving to a white majority society so and then i became i became invisible it's not Mm -hmm. even that i was ugly it's that i was invisible i was on I, I, wasn't, I wasn't on anyone's chart of of beauty, right? right? As, so this is an experience that I really, so I'd ended up internalizing that I was not even on any scale of beauty and that therefore I was, yeah, because I was a person of color and I'd internalized that I could not be perceived as attractive unless by someone who's exceptional and someone who's happens to be extremely open-minded. So it is something that I carried through puberty, And I entered my adult life with those internalized perception of, extremely negative perception of me not having beauty at all, not benefiting from that. And I think probably as a trauma response, I then took my career towards modeling. And I think that's the reason why, one of the reasons why I got into modeling was also a way of reclaiming my beauty. And it turns out that I was, fairly successful in, into modeling. So this is also why I'm so confident in talking about beauty privilege and how one might benefit from it because I was a model for 15, 15 years, oh. or even maybe more, yes. Uh, I still technically, I'm a model. I am represented by agencies and if I'm available, then I will do the jobs. But, um, but yeah, now my, my other, other career as, as a trainer on anti-racism um, keeps me busy earns me much more money. So yeah, I don't really consider myself as a model anymore, but I am fully aware of how I've benefited from it. I've lived off it for years and years. So Mm -hmm. How could I not say that I benefit from beauty privilege? Of course I have, but that's also a response to me being on the other end of of the beauty privilege uh, as a person of color in a white society, as someone who was considered and had internalized that I did not have any beauty at all. So uh, yeah, again, it's another example of how something negative, I was able to turn it into a positive, but it's, I'm still very careful to not say that it helped me because I don't know where I would be in life if I hadn't experienced that trauma in the first place. And Mm -hmm. who knows, I might even be further in life and more successful in a way. We would never know. All I can tell you is that, yeah, I've turned that trauma into something that benefited me, but I don't know if I would have benefited more if I hadn't had that trauma.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, clearly, you fit in a certain idea of, of beauty, even though it's not a white one, because otherwise Absolutely. you wouldn't have been able to have a carrier as a model. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm yeah, wondering yeah. if it's so, something recent. I'm sorry, just go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, carry on. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if it's something you.
0: if it's something rather recent that we tend to have more diversity in modeling now than we did when you and I grew up, or if it's just something that's more visible because of the internet.
1: Uh, I would say it's recent and there, is, there has been an appetite for, for diversity, I would say, in a certain way. The problem with that is that it doesn't mean liberation and it doesn't mean mm-hmm. equality because we see that if, if, if you look at the history of Brazil, for instance, Brazil was a country that was built on the myth of a post-racial society. And and in some ways, maybe the, well, not really the United States, because they were very happy to divide. But in Brazil, you have sort of the opposite. So it's all built on the dream of a post-racial society. We are not white. We are not black. We are all mixed. And it's beautiful. And look at us. But then very quickly, you realize that that myth is actually just a tool to negate the existence of racial disparities and the existence of racial oppression and the fact that the elites are white and the oppressed are black in Brazil, because, oh, we're all the same. We're all on the same boats. No, we're not. But mm-hmm. it was just for the sirens. I live in the hood. Uh, it's OK. <laughs> and so, yeah, we have the example. So I'm using the example of Brazil, but that applies everywhere in the world. So we have to be very careful because there is an aspiration to this ideal of mix mixity is mixity a word in english i don't know of maybe mis- well miscegenation but yeah in, in that in, yeah in the like the diversity and dilution of races it is something that a lot of people aspire to but mm-hmm. that does not mean end of racism it's very quickly becomes a tool of racism because it negates people's experience it it aligns with i don't see color so, you mm-hmm. know, like, yeah, 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 I accept you regardless of your color. But when you say, I don't see color, you're also saying, I do not recognize that your racial identity has an impact on your on your position in society and on your experience of society. Yes. So it becomes a very toxic discourse. And I think that the same in modeling and in also in advertising this, this boom and this trend of representing diversity that can very quickly lead to, oh, well, yeah, we are very diverse. There's no more racism. Let's move on and shut up. You can't say that we're racist, so we can't address the issues because look Mm. at how diverse we are. So, yes, there is probably more diversity in representation in in the media, especially in in fashion, in modelling and in advertisement. But that doesn't mean the job is done. We have to be extremely careful because this can be a tool of oppression as well.
0: Yeah, it's something that unfortunately I'm extremely familiar with as a trans person Yeah, because the same way Mm -hmm. that people don't see color, they also don't see gender and don't see a difference between cis and trans, but the same people who say that they will very happily enforce sexism on a trans man pretending that they're not doing it. And if you don't see it, how can you behave so differently to men and women and chuck me together with women in one category? You have to be seeing something.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah. And yeah, it's I've, I've well I've not experienced it firsthand, but I've witnessed it happen. I've witnessed trans men being the, in the way they were being addressed to, you could see that it stems from misogyny because they were yeah. perceived still as women by the people who were attacking them and they were treating them as such. Mm-hmm. so so it it then it becomes very complex because you want to to recognize. The, the the trans person's identity but you also know that they still so they experience um oppression from from all sides of yeah. their, their identity and then denied all of those identities at the same time mm-hmm. all the while being oppressed for them so yeah it's
0: yeah it's, it's you know that's why i'm terrified of trying to live as gender fluid and having more people know that i'm not a cis man or especially a cis it's yeah, it's terrifying because I've lived through that. I almost died, and yeah, yeah. you know, like depression is real, and, and now I'm stronger. I, I hope, but it feels like it's a double edged mm-hmm. sword. And I, I'm wondering. I mean, we had this conversation quickly at some point. I'm wondering if it's worse in French speaking uh, situations or, or like in France as opposed to English speaking situations because it feels like. The French speakers are ten years backwards compared to the people who can get their information in English.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: well, you're in a great position you, you, to tell uh, me about that.
1: <laughs> well, actually, I was literally about to say you would have to tell me because when it comes to 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 gender uh, gender debates,
0: I don't well, uh, know. gender or racism, I don't, I don't like really know much like about what
1: happens in France.
0: Yeah. I actually I don't know much either, because yeah. I, I live in Austria, yeah. I used to live in, like, the whole being trans thing happened in Germany, so I don't actually know okay. how it is in, in France, um, but I know how I interact with French people when I meet them, it's just a small subset. And Yeah. But, but the thing with race, particularly in France, it's it's horrendous, like, people will say... Uh, The race has no scientific basis, which is true, but then they leave the conversation at that. Like, this is not a point about science. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's like, yeah, we can acknowledge that race has no biological uh, foundation. And and at the same time, recognize that it is also a social construct that does have really concrete uh, results on on people's lived experiences. Uh, But usually, yeah, we stop at that. And... um, yeah, I have many questions to ask you, but this is not. Uh, that, yeah, because <laughs> sure, like, like, for it's, instance, it's, the, the <laughs> it's a relaxed conversation so in ahead. French. In French, I have no idea how 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 we navigate it in French. That's you know how, how do you have they them? What's the equivalent in French? And how do you degender in in the spoken? French. How, how does
0: that work? But I, I don't know. Yeah. Mostly you don't, but I just gave a class on YouTube live yesterday about that. Uh, so if right. you have an hour, you can go watch that. And uh, yeah, it's very uh, nuanced. And uh, and I, I got mad because of the écriture inclusive, which is... Um, yeah, I, ne- I never loved the concept. I was like, I don't think we need that. But then I started doing research because I was asked to teach it from m- my viewers. And it it drove me completely mad because it's not just useless, which would not be a big problem. It's counterproductive. It's counterproductive Mm -hmm. in two ways, because one, it gives some ammunition to the bigots to like pretend that the feminists are taking over the world. And and that's a bad backlash to have when Mm -hmm. we already had ways to speak in French that are gender neutral, thanks to all the numerous formulations that we have, which can be used by any gender. You know, things like summer play, uh, or the adjectives like uh, agreeable or magnifique that, which don't change from masculine to feminine and we basically had everything we needed uh-huh. in my last day job which I got fired from for being trans I was actually in charge of making the text gender neutral so that was why I was hired and also why I was fired you'd gotta love that what? yeah no it's real it's real um but uh, and okay. then they came up with the écriture inclusive which I understand where it stems from but it's not necessary it triggers discussions that we don't need to have and worse mm. than that it is all cons- all based on the idea of giving women more visibility it's not to make the yeah. ge- the language gender neutral which would be a good thing it's to give women more visibility now i have nothing against women i think it is they should you know be encouraged more and everything like I-, I love women too so you know but do you really have to push down any kind of other like social category as you try yeah, to approach so
1: women. But that is Reinforcing the binary yeah. instead of, of liberating from it. Yes. This is so interesting. Yeah. It it totally makes sense to me. So obviously I'm not speaking on on the on the trans experience and I'm not speaking on the debates that are ha- happening in France around that because I am not informed and I'm not in a position of of having an opinion on that. But I can draw parallels with racism and the debates around racism. And I totally can relate to this notion that sometimes, they, even we, if the intent is to progress, we end up blurring the lines and having completely unproductive debates. And I have this example of, it's not actually in France, but I'm sure the same happens in France, but in some of the trainings that I was delivering, there was... So I'm, I talk about racism and anti-racism and all the me- the, the dynamics of it all. and. Somebody told me, well, I'm, I'm very confused. I don't understand because 20 years ago, we were told that we should no longer use the terms black coffee or white coffee. So those were people who were working in catering and their boss, bosses have told them that to no longer use black or white coffee because it was offensive, because it was racist. And and then we have to pick racism. up the, the pieces from that because yeah. that this is exactly what happens when people who are not... In, in, in who do who are in position of privilege and who are not part of a marginalized identity feel entitled to make decisions on behalf of those marginalized people, and mm-hmm. all they end up doing is further confusing people, further, further bringing you know, throwing. Fuel into the fire of, of misconception and misunderstanding because that person who was talking to me was completely understandably confused yeah. because they ended up perceiving the fight against racism as a fight of some completely ra- random words are nowadays forbidden because that's mm-hmm. racism how do you expect them to understand what racism is and the dynamics of of, of repression and how it serves how race was built to serve the 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 privilege and to serve the economy of capitalism they will never get there because their first experience of being not racist was that they were told to not use the term white coffee or black coffee so yeah and i can totally imagine that the same kind of unproductive and
0: constructive discourses may happen around around gender as well so i mean around gender it's mostly the pronouns Mm-hmm. And like when I had my last day job where I struggled so much and eventually I didn't manage to keep myself in the company, uh, the well-meaning colleagues who were really trying to be nice, they were obsessed over pronouns. And me, especially at the time, I didn't care. I was like, yeah. it does not, it's not about the pronouns. Like you can't, you can't, like, I want you to stop being a sexist. Okay. It's not about what pronoun you use. It's the it, pronoun is a small word. It's your entire behavior that, you know, you need That's, to like, yeah. readdress. Don't dismiss me when I speak. If, if you're gonna, you know, it's, it's not a pronoun and it, it, ah, it's, it's tiring. And I'm really annoyed that a lot of the um, debate, quote unquote, ends up being a debate on words. So whether you know, so it's <laughs> white coffee or black coffee or a pronoun, it's, it boils down to people think that racism is in speech. Now it can be in speech, Sure, uh, but it's so like a very small, racism. yeah. yeah. And, and the same for sexism and, and you know, transphobia and all of that. Like when we are complaining that trans women are killed in the US on a now probably weekly basis because it used to be monthly, but it's increasing. They are not complaining about someone who didn't respect their pronouns. They're complaining about someone who killed them and will probably be let off with a light sentence if we even you know, sentence them at all because they had trans panic. What the hell like this has nothing to do with a fucking pronoun (laughs) what
1: the hell yeah and this is the problem of 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 individualizing a system of oppression instead of of looking at how society in general contributes to oppress people we are we are turning it into a person so racism is not the ways in which uh people of color are more likely to be incarcerated to be arrested and all of that no it's racism is a member of the kkk Mm -hmm. so that so it's very convenient for people to look at the most extreme version of personal overt intentional racism because they're like oh well i'm not like them therefore i'm exempt i'm i'm not a racist and i believe that it's probably very much the same when it comes to 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 transphobia there is yeah. this notion of a, a transphobic person people look at them and they're like well i'm not like that i don't think that trans people should be killed therefore i'm good and, and i don't need to examine the ways in which i may have benefited from from my gender privilege
0: from from being cis or etc etc so I mean, yeah like, yes I, yeah they don't think trans people will, should be killed but they also don't think that trans people should be hired uh, or, or kept yeah. within a team you know so uh, yeah yeah, or they think that
1: trans people make it always about their transness, or they think that they should disclose it uh, in, in at the first date, or, or things like that. So yeah, they, they don't perceive themselves as transphobic, but they, they're happy to be the vehicle of yeah. of the, the ideas
0: that lead to, to trans people being murdered. So yeah. And they aren't willing to look at their own behavior and acknowledge how they behave differently. Like, for example, the reason why I was fired last time was because of communication difficulty. And so when I went to speak mm. to a, uh, a trans advocate person and tried to you know, find a lawyer and so on because it was completely illegal, uh, the person asked me, okay, like, but were they indeed communication difficulty? Like, is this a real reason to, like, is this true that there was? And I was like, oh yeah, I was fired on a Friday and on the Monday, the um, company was expecting an outside uh, counselor person to come and talk to the entire team to fix the communication difficulties that the entire team had. So of course there was communication difficulty. However, only one person was fired over it, me, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and what you say,
1: obviously I can't speak on your experience but that also resonates with me in a, in a particular way as in the neurodivergent person because being rejected or fired or dismissed for communication difficulty is also the lived experience of of autistic people, people with ADHD and that is very often also the reason that is invoked to to push them aside and and yeah so and that it it might be a combination of all of them everything that puts Mm -hmm. you outside of the norm that will be presented or interpreted as communication difficulties and and black people also experience that Mm -hmm. Um, you know how they are very often perceived as aggressive, as to direct, as not having the codes uh, to really be appropriate in a professional context. All of those are excuses that are, that have their roots in racism and that are justified and also put, wrapped into this notion of communication differences, mm-hmm. cultural differences. Yeah. So it's 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 the intersection of all of those as soon as you are not part of the norm then that would be presented as no it's not because you're this it's it's just that you know mm-hmm. it's not a match it's we don't understand each other of course you want to understand each other because you have different experiences of society but that should not be ba- a base for 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 firing someone or dismissing someone that should be a signal that hey maybe we are not inclusive in the way we work and the way we we expect our employees to work so yeah it, it's great that they have this communication expert coming in but why do they have to fire you if they acknowledge that there is an issue
0: well, So yeah. yeah because it's not because of that i mean and, and yeah. the whole team knew because at that point i had already gotten fired six months before from another company so i knew what this what all the, the fuss was and i was able to speak to people around me and the entire oh. team knew. A- another good sign I find to, that you've been fired for something illegal is if the reason they give you for the firing is different from the reason they give to your team for why you were fired, oh. which is what happened okay. to me in my first job. I was like, uh, I was told that the reason why I was uh, getting, uh, this was not technically fired because it was in Austria and you can't just fire people. So they made me sign a contract that, uh, like not a contract, but a paper saying that I was happy to leave. Which I was happy at this stage because they had made me go through hell through HR meeting after HR meeting to find out what they would do with my case and when they presented me a paper which was like "Yeah, you you can have like you know unemployment benefit and be out of this hellhole I was like yes like let me sign you know Uh, but apparently the reason was that the entire team hated me and they didn't know what to make of me because that was the reason why uh, you know like I I was uh, unable to relate to the entire team but the same team with whom I spoke after the fact, because I had their contact, told me that I was fired because I couldn't handle the stress. Wow. And I will admit that at this point, after, you know, two three months of like this, like just grinding and coercion, yes, I was very stressed out. This is true. Of course.
1: <laughs> so it's placing the book, so it's, it's like such a typical mechanic of oppression. So first mm-hmm. they oppress you and then they blame you for the way you handle being oppressed. yes, And they make it your problem, instead of looking at the way they, the ones who are doing the oppression um, or the abuse. And it's, it's literally, yeah, it's, it's an example of abuse as well. And that's exactly mm-hmm. how abuse works. The abuser will do the abuse and then blame the victim yes. for responding to that abuse. Uh,
0: it's, it's absolutely, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And so that, that's how, after I had this experience twice, and I was just, I had, was honestly like, I'm either going to transition or to die. And if I'm going to transition, it will take me years and I won't have an ID and I will be outed anywhere that I try to get a job. So I, 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 I'm not going to go through that, like, cause it's gonna kill mm-hmm. me. And, uh, and I could, another option uh, would have been to try and ask the German government for money which they would have paid me if I was German or if I had worked in Germany more than one year. But unfortunately, I got fired so fast that I didn't have enough work experience in the country. So because the first time I was fired was in Austria. And it's Europe. So in theory, you can like move papers around from country to country, but I don't know a single person who has succeeded. I know a lot of people who have failed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I was only left with the option of starting a business, which is what I did. And I'm very happy now. And I acknowledge that I'm very privileged to just sit at home and literally be the boss of, of me and of, you know, my team, whenever I work with someone else. And, and this is privilege that I have built like, you know, through blood, sweat and tears, literally, which is why I'm so passionate about the innate versus acquired privilege um, mm-hmm. discussion. Yeah.
1: And, and would you say that y- your ability to transition or not determines where you would live and or, or that's completely unrelated?
0: Because no, I, I it's, imagine that, but yeah. it's not related for me. However, okay. I had a really fun uh, plan because when I first decided to transition, there was no law in France uh, that allowed me to change my gender. So yeah, basically there was no law at all. And the people who tried at the end of the day, it came down to uh, com- either compulsory surgery or just sometimes it was just rejected even for people who had that surgery because they thought that the identity is like, set in stone. And you, wow. in France, you're not allowed to change your name. It, it's not just your gender marker, it's your name as well. Uh, unless you can, you are de facto not allowed to do it, basically, because your name is not, you know. like, the, the case the, Um they have made it uh, less bad, because, because of all the trans people who were rejected, despite having fully transitioned, even, you know, surgically and everything, um, the EU has been uh, badgering friends for 10 years telling them that this is against human rights and they have to do something wow. so halfway through my transition or like well two or three years after two, two years after i had started to transition they created a law which then allowed me to change my gender and i was quite lucky because the, the law is vague and so it kind of depends on whom you meet and who is looking at your file but I acted out like the, you know, straight man role very well in court and therefore they let me through. But I got lucky that it happened at that point. Before that, I had a plan of acquiring the German citizenship through being married with my ex-wife. And then after that, using the German law, which did exist to change my gender, which would have taken a lot more time. So the law
1: in Germany is is, is more accommodating to, to trans people than in
0: France. Not anymore. Uh, because Not the law anymore. in Germany okay. is 20 years old and the law in France okay. is only two years old now. Okay, but that's crazy that it took
1: France so long compared to Germany, which is typically perceived as, as a less progressive country yeah. when it comes to, to gender and, and sexual orientation. I, I don't know if they have a gay marriage now. But they do now. If, if um, they, two years. Okay, if
0: the, yeah. okay, so that's fairly recent, right? So yeah, I actually wasn't expensive. officially married. I was officially mm. in. A, um, how can I can, how can I call that in English? Like a recorded civil partnership. partnership. Yes, a civil okay, partnership, yes. if you will. Yeah. yeah, because I was legally female, and my wife as well at that point. Which which is crazy because if we had gotten married, well, if we had gotten like you know signed the paper two months earlier, we would have been married because she was legally male. But then she changed her marker, and I still had my female marker, so we were same-sex. And then I changed mine, so we were straight again. Wow. <laughs> what the <heck>? OK.
1: <laughs> same yeah, couple, three that... options. Yeah, three. Wow, OK. Well, and We weren't yeah, we... even
0: together all that long. Like, we were together like three years and a half total. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the the hoops that you have to go through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm actually shocked to realize how backwards France still is. I mean, yeah, you. So yeah. you're saying that there's this this is getting better now. But yeah, I had no idea that up until recently it was so bad. Still, I'm not saying that it's great now. I don't. I mean, the it's not the law is
0: better, but I don't live in France, so I can't really tell. But I'm very happy to be in stealth that I can tell you. And yeah, but I'm yeah. I'm, I'm happy privilege-wise. I'm not happy in my identity. That's a problem.
1: And is okay. transitioning covered by by the
0: uh, healthcare system in France or in? in uh Europe? yeah, like, yeah. I'm pretty yeah, sure it yeah. is. Okay. I haven't done it myself, okay. but I'm positive that it is. Huh. Yeah. Um. Also in yeah. Germany. I mean, all over course, Europe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay.
0: But well, yeah, like yeah, you can be covered by healthcare and still have to find a way to support yourself through it. Like that's two different things. And they have a good system for, you know, if you're unemployed or anything, but you can easily fall through the crack if you have moved countries or if you haven't worked enough or if you're too young or too old or whatever. It's, uh, mm. it, it's, it's so kind of crazy. If t- yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. if
1: of you happen to be, yeah, if on top of that you happen to be, let's say, a, a migrant or someone who has, Oof. for whatever reason, has troubles to prove, you know, the legality of their existence, then oh that God. intersects
0: and that yeah. ends up making it worse. Yeah, that's how in France we have so many trans sex workers who are in that situation. Mm. Because yeah, yeah, like no, no papers or like papers that aren't the right ones, and it's it's, it's a mess. It's a nightmare. And of course, like if you're an unquote illegal immigrant or you're undocumented, you're very likely to also not be white, right? <laughs> yeah. So we don't have that as well.
1: Yeah, so this is how we see the intersection of, of your racial identity and your gender identity intersect, and that makes you even more marginalized.
0: Yeah, I mean, um,
1: yeah.
0: You... yeah, which is one of the reasons why, like, I think it's important when you're a marginalized person to acknowledge the privilege that you do have because it's the only thing that you can leverage.
1: Like, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, if yeah. you have an, an, an interest in like getting out of the hole that society has put you in, what you need to look is like, okay, in your hole, what do you have that you can possibly use as a ladder? Because Absolutely, yes. Being, being white and being able to pass as male and even having male documentation now, I know it's something that I'm using. And in, for example, building an online business, I know I have a tremendous advantage from passing as a white male. Yeah, because you get
1: access to more circles, to more spaces in which you can advocate for people who do not have your privilege.
0: Yeah, Um, but like, for example, people don't criticize my prices. Like I've almost Mm. never had a client look at me and be like, oh, that's too expensive. And I'm very expensive, like compared to, you know, the average person who teaches French online. And I'm sure this is a male privilege because every single woman that I've been in a money mindset class with, with, say how people think that sh- pretend that she's too expensive even though technically women are less expensive than men and it's yeah and this yeah. is
1: exactly this is exactly you cannot challenge the structures of oppression if you don't acknowledge and and understand the ways in which oppression applies differently to different people and mm-hmm. it's not felt uniformly the problem is that you know a lot of people they that usually implies that you have to recognize the ways in which you may benefit from it. Yeah. And some people are very quick to say, oh, white people, they don't, they, they don't really want to recognize how they participate in racism. People of color may say that, but when you go to them and tell them, okay, but do you also acknowledge that you may benefit from, from, from male privilege, for instance, or stuff like that, then suddenly, oh, no, no, they don't want to do that. And then they accuse you of sowing division among yeah. the oppressed, um, but yeah, as you said, yeah, you, you can challenge and deconstruct a form of, of oppression if you don't realize what, what role you have in it, what position you have in it, d- given to you by the system. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't, that it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's necessary. You need to acknowledge the tools that you have at your disposal to deconstruct it. And in order to do that you have to look at your privilege as well you have to look at the spaces that you have access to you have to look at the people who are willing to listen
0: to you yeah no i was also also a form of privilege that i have is that people actually come to my you know youtube live and classes and when i talk they listen and so i can speak about topics like privilege and things like that i don't speak about it a lot because i don't want that to become the core of what i do because uh, uh, I've been speaking about it in the past and been hit very hard. And like the whole point of using your privilege to advocate is that you don't lose your privilege in the process because otherwise yeah. it's pointless.
1: Absolutely. And <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, so many people don't get that. And then they will look at you and they'll be like, you should do more. You could do more. Why don't you no, do you more? Can't. You're still in a privileged position. And it's like, yeah, but you have to negotiate. It's, yeah. it's a compromise between losing it and still keeping enough of it so that you can turn Mm -hmm. it into a tool of deconstruction. And, and, and there's, there is not what right way of doing it. So, but it's important to know that we're trying to figure it out all the time. So when people accuse you of, of still having privilege, it's like, yeah, but you can't give it all up
0: because then you you have it internalized as well. Yeah, and you have it internalized as well. So every step of the way you have to fight yourself to figure out what you can do and what you can't do. So for example, I started wearing nail polish again, like uh, Mm -hmm. two, three weeks ago, which I hadn't done for years. And I was terrified at the beginning and I didn't really have a reason to be, like people kind of tend to appreciate it. But who knows, like how much is too much? when i started being like exploring my gender you know a couple of months before i got fired uh, i started wearing binder i started using you know male shower gel things like that and the first you know few weeks nothing happened no one even mentioned anything and I'm like okay this is fine i can continue and then you don't know what flips the switch but the switch has flipped somehow and Already. it's well i mean i did get fired eventually so yeah i don't know mm, what yeah you know like it's it's terrifying because and also the people who are doing it, like, you know, the people who fire you or whatever, they're covering up their asses in the process so they can't be sued or ideally can't. I mean, in Germany, you can't sue people because there isn't a single competent lawyer. So there's that. Um, but in Austria, probably I could have, um, or also it was mm. a much bigger company, so they were more equipped to cover themselves. And it's, yeah. and it was the first time it happened to me. So you're caught in a whirlwind of not even knowing what happens. It's just yeah, it's terrifying. And then when you intersect it with the with the being neuroatypical as well, like I, I we haven't spoken about that so much. It's something I would have loved to uh, hear a bit more. Maybe we can just like, switch to that. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I don't love diagnosis. Um, I don't see the point. Mm-hmm. But then I feel I have no legitimacy to call myself whatever because I don't know. Like I think the the diagnosis that fits me best is CPTSD. Uh, Because when I read the list, it's, and because I know that uh, ADHD and a number of others, uh, like CPTSD can, can look a lot like ADHD. I'm thinking maybe I don't have ADHD, but I relate to it because of CPTSD. And it's, I don't know if I should spend more time exploring that and if that would benefit me, uh, or if it's something that I should just be like, that does not really define me. And it's difficult because I love labels. And actually we haven't spoken about labels because we both love them so we don't need to have the conversation <laughs> but yeah, yeah well like, it's yeah uh, what do you do it's with that funny. are you Maybe officially diagnosed month. yourself from being a uh, for being a dhd and autism or is it something that okay you not? um what
1: my, my whole neurodivergence journey has is very long <laughs> mm-hmm. um but yeah at first in france i was diagnosed as gifted so when i was a child so that's a diagnosis in france Fuck, that's something about our culture that's that's (sighs) the thing like it has the meaning in france and in the medical circles in france that does not exist for instance in the uk Uh, or at least i haven't found it so i've used the same word or the translation for "surdoué" in the uk mm-hmm. which is gifted but i've realized that people responded to it completely differently and because we think it's a good thing in English. well it's so so i've spoken to 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 psych professionals and it was in the context of therapy so mm-hmm. i brought it up and right all the time the the, the response was oh, so what is your gift? If you say you're gifted, what do you mm-hmm. mean by it? Right. And it was very confusing to me because why would you ask, like you're the you're the, the psychology professional, why mm. are you asking me what I mean by it? Like, it's not a term that I invented. Right. It is a label that has, so it, it, that, and that's the confusion because in France it is, so when you use that word, people know what it means. So yeah, you know, it's, it's a form of, a different mm-hmm. form of intelligence or yes. and that manifests itself with this this and that whereas here it's like oh so you're talking about the gift that you have what is your gift mm-hmm. and I was like what I'm not talking about having a gift I'm talking about giftedness as as right. the the, right. the you know the neurotype yeah then um, don't know. so yes yeah so that's when I realized okay that's going to be a long journey because <laughs> if I have to if each term is different has a different meaning in the countries that that's going to be great so Mm -hmm. yeah i was diagnosed as gifted as a child so i was told from from a very young age that my intelligence was different um and it's even more complicated to navigate because the whole notion of intelligence is something that i reject and i think we should all reject but at the same time again it, it at in certain contexts it is useful to describe your identity and your reality and your different perception of of society and your relationship with it. Anyway, so yeah, I I knew that I was different. I knew that I was wired differently. I knew that I experienced emotions differently from most of the people around me. So regardless of what you name it, it is something that I knew. I've always felt different because of that. But then it's fairly recent that I started revisiting that experience and and started to be interested in in putting more fitting labels onto it especially when i realized that the label gifted in the society that i lived in namely in the uk has absolutely no meaning or a completely Mm -hmm. different meaning so i was starting trying to okay what is the label that would fit me here uh and then that's why when i realized that a lot of what was understood as part of giftedness in france uh, within what was understood as ADHD in the UK mm-hmm. so that's when I realized that everything that all the criteria or almost all of them not all of them but that's a twist uh, that I would right. get to later but most of them completely fitted me so that's what I started seeking for diagnosis and for your audience in the UK there are two healthcare systems system in a way there's the public one which is free mm-hmm. but you have to wait and and then private so if you have the money you can you can get an appointment very quickly so i've pursued both avenue i mean i first tried to pursue the public avenue um but there was a waiting list for diagnosis and fun fact it's been three years and i'm still in the queue Gosh. so there's that wow yes and and then but obviously after a few months i was like well i'm not gonna wait like mm-hmm. i need to move on with my life so i ended up going through a private psychiatrist who officially diagnosed me so yeah so i've got adhd diagnosis now autism is the same story except that i haven't started i haven't had the spoons the time the energy to start this process all over again for autism and what is interesting is that is through the adhd process with the public sector they they were making me I, i must have had five six interviews talking to six different people every time telling the same story so every time it's like a stage thing so you like mm-hmm. you pass this first stage so now they allow you to meet that other person like so that you can i it's can imagine yeah. yeah yeah and it's ridiculous because all of those st- stages only to put me on a list that three years later I am still on so it's like such a waste of public money and and a waste of of people's energy as well because like obviously that completely grounds you down um but yeah where was I getting oh yeah so through each of those stages there was always at some point someone mentioning okay but what you are describing sounds a little bit like Asperger or sounds Mm -hmm. a little bit like autism you know and at the time I was very dismissive of it not because I didn't believe them but because I felt like If they start taking me into that direction, that means that that would take me away from my ADHD diagnosis. And I wanted that diagnosis to have access to medication to try and mitigate the negative effects of ADHD. So I was very focused on, which is ironic, I was focused on ADHD. Um, I was extremely concentrated and attentive to go towards um, ADHD diagnosis because of that medical reason. Uh, So at the time, I I took it as a threat to be, not that I didn't believe that I might be on the autistic spectrum as well, but I thought, okay, they're going to divert me from getting where I want to get. And it's only now that I have that diagnosis that I can like calm down and look calmly and I'm like, yeah, absolutely, there is
0: autism in that. Because you have the space Um, for that now and you have the acquired privilege for your ADHD diagnosis to look into your autism. Yeah. Exactly. Yes.
1: So, yeah, that's a great example of a quiet privilege, actually. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, now I have been able to look into that as well. And also, social media had a huge role in it because, first of all, it made me aware that there were such things as people with both ADHD and autism. Because at first I was like, okay, but autism seems to fit as well, but I can't be everything. Mm -hmm. I can't have every possible neurodivergence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah so i i completely relate so meeting or being in touch with people who actually live that experience made me realize that yeah it is a thing it's not just me taking all the labels that exist and applying them to me because i lack attention it's like okay that some people actually live that and it sounds a lot like my experience so i think that that's what i am too and um, so yeah researching and i, I i'm gonna take away researching because usually it's it's uh, very negative like oh you need to do your research on covid by going on facebook so yeah no
0: not you always need to do thing, research on everything like, it's not negative to me <laughs> I yeah. do re- it's no, all I what know, i do all day, people, every day
1: of course but when people say oh i've done my research now, nowadays, what they mean is I went on Facebook and somebody told me that, you know, some some horse yeah. D warmer was good, good at defeating but... COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not the meaning of researching, but I mean, I mean, mostly listening to people's experiences and realizing how that fits my experience as well. So I was like, OK, well, maybe I do have those two labels. And we go back to the notion of labels. I completely understand people who... Do not like labels because historically labels have been a tool of oppression Mm -hmm. but labels have also been a tool of validation and in my experience labels have helped me validate my experience because when you have a lifetime of being told that your emotions are not true and your perception is wrong then you end up internalizing it and then, then when suddenly someone tells you hey actually, no, you're not crazy. You're not, you know, you've been gaslit, mm-hmm. gaslighted your entire life. Here is what you are, actually. Here's a label that describes right. your experience to the T. And, and that, you know, so in my experience, labels have been an extremely positive and liberating thing. But of course, I also know that this not that's not the case for everyone. So I think that we should all be able to use the labels however we feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with and and i think unfortunately there's this battle between the labelists and the anti labelists and there's very little room for understanding that if it fits you keep it if it doesn't fit you you should have the freedom to not have it and and very often there's not that nuance and people will fight over oh let's abolish gender let's abolish like you know abolish um neurodivergence or or the the medical associations with autism because it's it's oppressive and it's like yeah it can be perceived as oppressive but make sure to not erase the dis- disability aspect of it because that's
0: a, someone's yeah.
1: experience of
0: society because then you have that issue with language that you basically have smoothed than the language but you still have the underlying yeah. oppression that we were speaking about and that's the same problem again absolutely
1: yeah so make sure to not remove someone's to be able to describe their experience because yes we would all love to not have races anymore yeah to not talk about race but until race will be a social marker and will have an effect on of you on your experience of society then we still need to have the term to to talk about it i would love to not be a black person and i aspire to no longer be a black person to be a human but until my blackness will have an effect on, on my life, then, then I need that term and I need yeah. to talk about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we have come full circle, which is great because we're pretty much <laughs> at, at the end of, of this episode. So that's a good way to round it mm-hmm. up. I have one last question, which I'm, I'm scared to ask now, but I still will. Uh, do you think it's getting better? <laughs> do you think people are becoming more open to different perspectives or is it more like people are driven into chambers more and more?
1: Uh, I think that there are several cycles that are happening at the same time. So there might be like a yearly cycle and then a a 10 year cycle and then a century cycle. Mm -hmm. So overall, I think that we tend to go to get better, but that would be like for the century cycle. So I think that we as a society, we are more aware and more more open minded than uh, 100 years ago. Kind of, yeah, I would challenge about that. the West.
0: Yeah, even even I mean, in the particular case of trans people uh, in Germany, a century mm-hmm. ago, so in the twenties, people were yeah. more aware and open than they are now. Yeah, and, and then um, the Nazis took over. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I guess that's a yeah. typical, so, it's a particular, specific case. But yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that that completely makes sense. So maybe the century is not the right scale. So maybe the millennia, millennium would be a more. Before colonization? No. You're sure? That's, that's where I was going when I said caveat. I'm talking about the West because we know that the pre-colonization, there were many, many civilizations that actually made room and accommodation for people who fell outside of their norms. And there were very often. Yeah, they, they
0: were there there was right. So you're making the case but, that it was yes. better before then colonization happened and then it was crap again.
1: So I say outside of the West, that does not apply in the West, because a thousand years ago we were pretty deep into you know Christian Christian values and mm-hmm. oppression, yes. then I think that applies to the West. But that's why I said caveats that I'm talking about the West here in terms mm-hmm. of, of being right. open-minded, right. but That makes sense for many other reasons. So but so, yeah, my point is that there are different scales and different cycles. So it depends on where you look. If you look at, for instance, on a yearly yearly cycle, then I think that since the events of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter uprising, there is a big at least awakening in terms of acknowledging that race has still a huge place, still a huge Mm -hmm. part in in today's society. Um, But is that, does that mean that there's not going to be the the pendulum coming back in the opposite direction? We don't know. That's why we need to look at cycles. Uh, For instance, there, there was a very negative cycle when Bolsonaro got elected in Brazil, when Trump got elected, when Brexit was voted, all of that around the same time. Um, And that was coming off the back of, oh, my God, Obama is president of the United States. We are now in a post-racial society. So we see that there are some cycles that are coming back and forth.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So
1: trying to answer your question, are things getting better? It depends on what scale you look at. I think that overall things are getting better. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a huge setback at some point that is going to take us hundreds of years ago the example of nazi of the nazi germany is a really good one because if we look at germany in the 1920s in terms of being progressive open-minded etc mm-hmm. etc yeah. et it, it's almost like wow like what in a hundred years like we've almost gone full circle they were almost mm-hmm. more open-minded and progressive then than now yeah. so how did we get to go so far back so by saying things are getting better It is also important to keep in mind that that doesn't mean that we are um safe from a a nazi you know dark ages again or something equivalent and this is almost what we got with trump Mm -hmm. and i don't know if we're clearly out of it yet i don't think we completely got ourselves out of that risk we'll see in a few years but it is completely possible so i don't like to say things are getting better because we still need to be really careful
0: Mm -hmm yeah well thank you that was a very nuanced answer i, I love it i appreciate it very much Yeah, uh, yeah i, I love the entire conversation it was amazing i can't wait to release it i'm sure that my viewers and listeners will just absolutely love it and by the way if you're a viewer or a listener and have listened to it until this point and you, you liked it please leave a comment either on youtube or like a review on your favorite uh platform because that really helps the podcast find more listeners and more amazing guests like joris so yeah Thank you for your help and thank you, Joris, for being here. And uh, I'll see everyone in the next episode. Thank you, thank you very much, Angel.